Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host Eddie Palmgren and with me here in the studio is my friend and colleague Niklas Sabos. How are you? I'm great and excited to speak with some really interesting people today. So am I. In today's episode of Investing by the Books, we are thrilled to interview Paul Johnson and Paul D. Sonkin. Both have, since the early 1990s, been involved with a legendary value investing program at Columbia Business School. And over the years, they have taught thousands of students. Besides their significant contributions to academia, Paul Johnson has been an investment manager and now runs the firm Nikusa Investment Advisors. Paul Sonkin's background also includes many years as a portfolio manager, for example at Gamco Investors, where he co-managed a value fund that primarily focuses on microcap stocks. When it comes to writing, Johnson and Sonkin are the authors of Pitch the Perfect Investment from 2017. Johnson has also contributed to Howard Marks' masterpiece, The Most Important Thing, while Sonkin is a co-author and a featured investor in Bruce Greenwald's classic title, Value Investing, from Graham to Buffett and beyond. So, Nicholas, which uh, book will we speak about today? In today's conversation, we will discuss Johnson and Sonkin's latest title, The Enduring Value of Roger Murray. Roger Murray was the teacher who took over the famous security analysis course at Columbia Business School after Benjamin Graham. And what is the book about? So the first part of the book tells the story about Murray's life and how he ended up as a teacher at Columbia, also summarizing Murray's thinking on security analysis. The second part of the book consists of four lectures on valuation that the 81-year-old Murray gave in 1993 before Bruce Greenwald began teaching security analysis at Columbia. At the time, there had been a gap in the class for around 15 years since Murray had retired from Columbia and the school sort of lost its touch with fundamental stock analysis, which you will hear more about in the conversation today. The third part of the book is a transcript of an exclusive interview Murray gave in 1996. Murray teached some famous investors of today, such as Mario Gabelli and Leon Cooperman, who has expressed their deep thanks to Murray for their successes and also wrote the foreword to the book. The Enduring Value of Roger Murray was released by Columbia Business School Publishing in December 2022. And we are honored to have its author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Paul Johnson and Paul D. Sonkin. Hello and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Oh, thank you. We're, it's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. We're really excited for this interview. It's really a pleasure to have you on. And where are you located today? Maybe we can start with you, Paul Johnson. Yeah, I think we're both located in New York. Um, well, and we've both been here a long time. Uh, I've been in New York. It seems like forever. Grew up on the West Coast of uh, the United States, moved to New York. 37 years ago or something. Thought I'd come here for a couple of years and then move back. Never did. And you, Paul Sonkin, you are not in the same location, I guess. No, I'm, I'm on the Upper East Side. And I guess uh, I, I, I think I'm going to be like a medieval peasant. I'm born, I'm going to live and die within a 50 mile radius. And how did you first get interested in stocks? We can start with you, Paul Sonkin. Um, I, I, you know, like so many other investors i probably you know bought my first stock with my bar mitzvah money like uh and it just always really held an interest for me and it was uh uh and then when i went to college uh uh you know i i studied ec- economics and business um 
And then when I graduated, Drexel Burnham had just gone uh, bankrupt. I was looking for uh, for sell side analyst jobs, and I couldn't uh, get any. And uh, so I took a position with the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, and that turned out to be great. And then I went to Goldman Sachs in compliance, and I noticed that uh, my career was going in one direction and my interests were going into another. So I went to Columbia Business School and corrected the problem. And that was where I met uh, Paul Johnson, uh, who was a star professor there. Paul, turn it to you. Wow, it's funny. That's when I met you. I became one of my star pupils. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, I, Paul and I were talking a little bit before. I haven't thought about the origin story in a while, and um, we both were commenting that a lot of investors started when they were young. You don't have to start when you're young, but a lot did. And I was in high school. It was the late '70s. A very good friend of mine, a still good friend of mine, um, convinced me to buy a gold stock. Um, I didn't know much about stocks. My father had been an attorney, was an attorney. And we, I think we bought a thousand shares at 25 cents a share or something like that, $250, which was a lot of money to a high school kid. You know, I'd done a bunch of jobs in restaurants and McDonald's and delivering newspapers. And about six, seven, eight months later, we sold it for $250 a share, $2,500. And that I took off to college with Ben. That always stuck in the back of my mind because it was so little effort. Now, I didn't realize how much risk I was taking at the time, but but it felt like so little effort. And I said my father was an attorney and he used to comment that the, his big frustration with being an attorney he was a sole practitioner is you'd only charge so much per hour and there were so many hours in a year. And so if he wanted to make more money, he had to find other ways. Now, large law firms solved that by having associates, as Paul Zonkin reminded me. But the combination of making money uh, independent of how much time you spent and my father talking about careers that kind of sat in the back of my mind i took an economics course like paul and loved it my older brother was getting his mba at uc berkeley at the same time he convinced me to take a graduate finance course i loved it and then just stayed with it and that was a gazillion years ago 40 years ago i guess and you are co-authors of The Enduring Value of Roger Murray. What uh, led you to write the book? I think a couple of things. Number one is both Paul and I were interested in the history of the discipline. Um, and I'll get uh, Paul talk a little bit about it. But he had done some primary research on <clears throat> the history separate from me. We had been friends from 94, 95. Um, he had taken my class. He'd taken actually two classes from me and we'd stayed friendly, but separate from each other, we had done some primary work. I'll have him talk about his. And then I got commissioned to co-author an article with Bruce Greenwald, who was probably the most famous and professor at Columbia Business School on the history of value investing for a book that came out called The Centennial. It's a hundred years of ideas. And uh, it was the history of Columbia Business School. And we wrote the chapter on the history of value investing. And Paul, when you talk about sort of the work you had done on, on well, so I'm 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 always interested in antecedents and kind of how people influence each other. And when I uh, so so I started teaching at Columbia Business School, I guess oh it it, it was very shortly after I graduated. It was funny because uh, uh, Paul, do you remember in Galen Heights office? 
like there, there was a professor that was supposed to teach during the spring and he backed out and, uh, Paul recommended me to teach and we, we were sitting in Galen Heights office and, uh, you know, he said, okay, you wanted to teach a class. Here's your class. So he said, you know, you start Wednesday and this was Monday. I'm like, you mean like this Wednesday as in two <laughs> days from now? And he's like, yeah. So I said, okay. And then in the hallway afterwards, like I said to Paul, I'm like, what am I going to do? And he's like, don't worry, we'll help you put together a syllabus and you'll outsource a few lectures. And so that was kind of how, uh, I got my start. Um, and, and when I was teaching, I kind of put together a family tree. And then I guess uh, in the uh, around 99, uh, when, when we were uh, uh, doing the research for value investing from Graham to Buffett and beyond and doing the interviews, we interviewed Robert Heilbrunn and Walter Schloss. And I just became uh, interested in the history and, you know, kind of putting together the family trees of who influenced each other. And, you know, and Roger Murray uh, had quite a few students that have gone on to be extremely successful. And then Paul and I published a book in 2017 called Pitch the Perfect Investment. And then in 2018, it was the, if I get the math right, right, it was the 25th anniversary of the Roger Murray lectures. And so we were talking to people and they said, boy, wouldn't it be great if we published those lectures and then well, why not do a biography? Um, and oh, do we, you remember that Mario had that celebration at Fordham for like Roger Murray's 100th birthday or it, it, it was something? And as part of that, I had to give a talk because I was working for Gabelli at the time. And, and Paul, remember, I, I, I emailed you the script that I used because I had to go back and, you know, I, I interviewed Mayor Feldberg and Bruce to kind of get the history again. So it just, that all coalesced and we decided we'd had, we really did. We wrote Pitch the Perfect. It took four years, <laughs> which is exactly three years more than I thought it would take. And we actually really liked working together. We complement each other very well. And we developed a really nice friendship. So the idea was, well, why don't we do, well, neither, I didn't know that much about Roger. You probably knew more than I did. And but that's decided, not saying a lot. Yeah, we decided to write the biography because, and, and we'll probably get into this. He's, he plays a very important link between Graham and kind of the modern teaching at Columbia Business School. And one of the things I've taught at Columbia forever, um, I guess 32 years. And one of the things I like is, is that I can track my course all the way back to Graham. And Roger's a big part of that link. So we launched on the project and that book took four years as well. We're thinking that books take four years. It's a constant, books take four, at least for Paul and Paul, books take four years. I think it's a, it's a great job you have done with the book. And in it, you write that readers might know of Roger Murray as the co-author of the fifth edition of Security Analysis. But that is one of the least interesting uh, accomplishments that he has done. So who was Roger Murray? You know, as I got to know Roger in the research process and then writing, of course, forces you to get clarity around the notes you've taken. Um, you find some, Paul talked about, being a, a peasant life in that he'll live in 
get born, live, and die all within 50 miles of each other. Roger could make the same statement, except it's within one block. Um, he's born on West 95th Street. He does go away to school for what we would call high school, but he ends up living uh, his whole adult life until he retires in the apartment building across the street from where he grew up. Uh, went to school, primary school, a school called Collegiate. It's the oldest private school in New York City. It was, the, it was a Dutch, originally Dutch. Um, and so Roger grew up in, a, in what we would think of at the time as a very classic New, New York, New England, waspy family. Uh, very conservative, wore a suit and tie every day. Uh, his son joked that he would wear a suit and tie sometimes on the weekends. So buttoned down in that sense, tall. He was a true gentleman. True gentleman in the classic sense. Um, but in the classroom, he, ex he displayed a passion which really infected his students. So if you saw him, very proper, almost stiff, 5'10", 140 pounds, just a very thin, uh, very spoke very precisely, really conducted his whole life that way. And yet underneath had this passion about financial analysis, security analysis, and stocks that I think really infected his students. And that probably, you know, he, Mario is his most famous student, but Leon Cooperman speaks very highly of Roger Murray as well. And I think it's probably that passion that the, these guys were interested in stocks, you're 25, 26 years old. You're in this room, very articulate, successful. And just the passion he had for it, I think, really fueled them. Uh, and that's and really cared about his students. Seemed to be unbelievably patient. If you came to his office, he, it was like he didn't, he didn't have another meeting that day or maybe even the next day. Take as much time as you want. Um, he read all the homework and, and gave very detailed feedback and uh, really took an interest in his students. Uh, Leon Cooperman talks about getting a letter from him many years later because he was reading a research report Mar that Leon had published as head of Goldman Sachs Investment Research. Murray read it and made some comments and sent it back with a cover letter, typed cover letter. So just this interesting combination of very proper, Paul's word, gentleman, East Coast sensibility, and then behind that, this just deep, very enthusiastic passion for stocks. I like how you describe it in the book that although Murray was busy as a manager of a fund, he was board member in five different financial corporations, trustee of five organizations, and adjunct professor. He never seemed pressed for time. He really seemed to have this very very calm personality. He it, it just that was a part that fascinated me. He also I heard this or read it many times, um, but heard it as well as that he had a wonderful sense of humor. Um, not so much delivering it, but really appreciated a good joke. Uh, and, I, and it's just, so you get this interesting combination of a guy. The the tapes that, that Gamco made in the 93 lectures, you can see Roger, and he's, he's I won't say stiff, but very proper. And uh, how did Murray then end up as a professor at Columbia teaching the security analysis class after Ben Graham? So he, he gets to graduate from Yale in 1932. Um, and you can imagine you want to get a job on Wall Street or at least in a bank. He'd grown up in New York, obviously. Um, and uh, there are no jobs, no jobs. And he had been promised a job at uh, uh, on Wall Street. But the person who had given offered him the job said, we're shrinking. Um, it was J.P. Morgan. He said, we're shrinking. You don't ha you're not going to have a career. Um, 
what no one found out until later is uh, by marriage, uh, Roger's uncle was head of Bankers Trust. Uh, so one of his aunts had married a gentleman who went on to become the president of Bankers Trust. And the, the word was, you, if your family, you don't apply, don't apply. No, no nepotism here. And Roger got a job, one of two interns and one of two trainees. The year before, two years before, they had hired 30, and that year they hired two. He was one of two. Again, Paul and I really love these serendipitous kind of events in people's lives. Um, and within the training program, you bounce around, and within a couple of months, investment management was his passion. It just clicked for him uh, and bought stocks or anything. And he then had a 24-year career. Um, 1956, decides to retire uh, it's not 100% clear why after he'd ri risen to be a vice president, he was the youngest vice president to be promoted when he did. At night, he got his PhD from NYU. It took him 10 years going part-time, very ambitious. Oh, by the way, he got a law degree along the way. Kind of, you know, so this guy was a very driven, hardworking uh, individual and um, who basically decides to retire in 56. Coincident to that, a guy named Courtney Brown had become the new dean of the Columbia Business School. And Courtney came in really with the idea of cleaning up. It had been a bit, been viewed a bit of a trade school. The curriculum kind of had no rhyme or reason. And Courtney Brown came in and said, look, I want to turn this around. He and Roger had worked together earlier in both of their careers and reached out to Roger to come in as uh, adjunct dean and, and not a professor, but to help him out on curriculum and some other thing. Um, about the same time, Ben Graham, who had started teaching in 27, announces he's going to retire at the end of the school year in 1956. And so the idea is that Roger, somebody needs to take over for this very famous course. Although, you know, the part that's fascinating to me is when Graham starts teaching in 27, he has 200 students show up, standing room only. And it's the same in 28, same in 29. But by 30, you can imagine the enrollment had dropped to about 20. So first three years, he has standing room only, then he has 20. For the rest of his time teaching, he never has more than 30 students. So we look back at Graham of having this enormous impact on value investing. All Fair wrote the two best books, Security Analysis in 1936, and then The Intelligent Investor in 1949. But he actually did not teach that many students. Still a bit famous. Courtney Brown says, boy, we'd like to keep that going. And it doesn't take long to pick Murray. Now, when Murray graduated in 32 from Yale, he wanted to be a teacher. But he had to, he would have had to go get a master's degree in, in English. He wanted to be a teacher. But in the middle of the Depression, saying to your parents, who were successful financially, he said, hey, I'm going to do one more year of school. I think Roger felt that was unfair. So he always wanted to teach. And here now, more events kind of coincide. Courtney Brown has hired Roger. Roger's working with him to cl clean up the curriculum. Roger always wanted to teach. They've got to replace Ben Graham. Murray steps in. He takes Graham's class in the spring of 56, um, sits in it, and really develops a personal friendship with Graham. Fall of 56, he takes over. He then teaches, not completely nonstop, until 77. I was blushing a bit, or, or so to say, that I didn't know about uh, Murray uh, before reading this book, actually. And, uh, I mean, I've, I've read, of course, Ben Graham's book, and... Uh, a lot that others have, have said about Graham, but uh, why is uh, why has Murray become so anonymous, or is it just me? No, and I think there's a couple of things, and Paul certainly likes to tell this story as well, so I'm going to let him jump in in a second, but um, 
Graham writes two books and then the world coalesces around those being the two books. So Graham made two very important contributions to, to investing, which we now call value investing. At the T, he always called it securities analysis or fundamental investing. Roger takes over and teaches for 21 years. If not for a couple events, we might not know about Roger Murray. Um, he was an important professor. He was the link from Graham that ultimately Greenwald. We can talk a bit more about that. But other than that, his direct contribution is not really much. Co-authored Security Analysis, the fifth edition, but didn't write any books. Um, we certainly didn't have podcasts and uh, things like that at the time. Uh, so it was really his influence on his students. And I think that's what's yeah, important. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that comparing Roger to Ben Graham is a fair comparison because like Graham had Graham Newman and he was actively managing money. Buffett, Irving Kahn, Walter Schloss worked at Graham Newman. Um, when Graham, and, and, and Paul, correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong. So, so Graham shut down Graham Newman in 56 and moved out to La Jolla. And then uh, a group of his students would like uh, go out to visit like once a year or something. So there are these pictures that you'll see in some of the books with like, you know, there's Sandy Gottesman and, uh, you know, all of these different guys that went out to visit him. So it was, and, and, and Graham was also, he wrote a lot. Um, so I, I, Graham was almost like superhuman and Roger was just a mere mortal. So I'm like, I'm not but, sure it's a... But Paul, I think, I think you said this up very well because Buffett takes Graham and then goes on to talk about how Graham influences life more than anybody else, maybe even more than anybody but his father. And so he really viewed that case. And Buffett goes on to be perhaps one of the most, certainly one of, if not the most successful investor of all time. And he'll tell you that Graham, the book and Graham is it. So you have that parallel because if you go ask Mario, Mario will tell you that, that Roger for him was, was what Graham was for Buffett. And so if we had never had a Buffett, would we have thought of Graham in the same way we do? Well, I, I think... It because if you look like, like, you know, I've spoken to people that went out to kind of the Berkshire meeting, like, like my friend, John Deicher. And he said, like, when he went out in the eighties, there were 20 people sitting around a cafeteria table. Now there are 56,000. So Buffett, I don't think really, uh, became like, uh, you know, more of a known, person probably until the 90s. And Which Graham, I think, Paul, probably coincides with the bull market that starts in the 90s. And then we decide to create superstars out of the investors. And I think, so you have these little things that kind of lead to this whole thing. So, Nicholas, back to your question of not knowing who Roger Murray is. Paul and I have been involved in the Columbia Business School value investing programs. Paul since 94, mine's in 92, so almost the same amount of time. And neither of us knew much about Murray, and that's our playground. So I think that your listeners and most people don't know about Murray. I'm 
A, I'm not surprised, and B, no one should be upset at themselves for not knowing more about Murray. And if anything, we I think the biography just kind of brings Murray's place in that history to more people so they can understand the history and the evolution of the ideas uh, a bit better. And uh, Professor Bruce Greenwald, who ultimately took took um, up the, the helm as, as, as the teacher after Murray. But I mean, maybe we could begin with talking about the gap years between because there was quite a long gap where where I, I don't think there was any cl- class or how was it between well, that? This is, yeah, this work gets messy. It's a great question. I love this question. So Murray, we already talked about it. He takes Graham's class in the spring of 56, starts teaching in the fall of 56. In the early 70s, he goes and he works at Kraft to help them build out their equity portfolio. And he goes from being a full-time professor to an adjunct for six years, goes back to being a full-time professor, retires in 77. The he then I'm, I'm going to give you the gap and then we'll go fill it in. He because of Mario's really push, he comes Roger comes back and does the series of lectures, which is the middle part of the book where we transcribed all that, added a few notes, gives these four 90 minute lectures, four subsequent Fridays. Literally 30 years ago last week would have closed them out, so the timing's kind of fun. And in that, Bruce attends and then we go on and come back to it. So we have this gap 77 to 93. Now in that gap, it actually is messy. And I think Paul, I'll let you riff on this, but we actually have a number of professors. Yeah, I don't know that I don't know that there was a gap. Um you know, they they say, well, in 1977 value investing was lost. And that's kind of the popular folklore. Paul and I have to go back and piece things together. But if you talk to people that were at Columbia Business School in the 70s, like Glenn Greenberg and Bobby Gottesman and Robert Bruce, they didn't take security analysis with Murray. There was uh, there were other professors that were there. Like I spoke to Glenn Greenberg and He didn't remember the guy's name, but it was like there was some guy from J.P. Morgan and came in in a suit and kicked his feet up on the desk and lit a cigarette and like, but didn't, he said like he thought the guy's name was Steve or something. Um, And then uh, in the mid 80s, you had Jimmy Rogers that somehow he started teaching there and we really... We haven't really taken the scholarship into that area, but you had, you know, like Pat Duff, John Vanini, Cliff Greenberg. So there's that area of the family tree that we don't know the full history. Um, so in 1977, Roger retires. And in 1979, um, uh, the dean goes to a guy named Charlie Wolf. Charlie Wolf was a uh, had a PhD from Harvard Business School, except they're not called PhDs. I think they're doctor of business or something like that. And he was a credit guy. So he'd come up on the credit side and talk credit. Well, you can know in 79, interest rates go to an all-time high because of inflation. And this guy named Renini at Salman Brothers invents this thing called the derivative and credit markets change dramatically. And frankly, Charlie's was an old credit analyst, cash flow, and EBITDA and all that. And so they went to Charlie and said, look, uh, you either have to learn derivatives or, by the way, why don't you give your, it's not a long stretch to go do equities. Um, and Charlie says, I like that idea. He said, but I want to do an, 
I'm going to take a sabbatical. Look, you get a sabbatical every seven years at Columbia. I'm going to take a sabbatical. Go work on Wall Street. There's a Jim, story. Jim Freeman, who is the director, former uh, uh, Columbia guy, is the director of research at, at the time, First Boston, Credit Suisse, First Boston. And Charlie goes to work with him for a year. And during that year, he wants to do research. And uh, Jim Freeman hands him a perspective on a company that had just gone public. And he said, look, Charlie, no one's going to follow this. No one cares. Why don't you write research on this company? Charlie looks at the perspective and it's this company called Apple Computer. I don't know if you've heard of them or not. So Charlie writes one of the first research reports on Apple Computer uh, just after they go public. He loves being an analyst so much that he gives up his tenureship at Columbia to become a full-time analyst. And the deal he strikes with the school is that he'll teach security analysis, which was really the course. That was Graham's, the title of Graham's course. He'll teach that every fall and then get somebody from Wall Street to teach it in the spring. And that's the deal. And so from 1980, that goes on and on and on until 1992, when I happened to have the office across the hall at First Boss from Charlie. And he walks in in July and he said, hey, kid. He seemed very old at the time. He's not very, but he seemed like, he said, hey, kid, how would you like to teach? And I said, Charlie, when I'm your age, maybe, but go away. And he said, no, 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 I need you to teach. I said, Charlie, why do you, what? give me the backstory. He gives me this whole backstory. And I said, well, you're supposed to teach. He said, yeah, 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 but I'm getting married. And I said, uh, what marriage is this? He said, it's number five. Now, I think it was just pulling my leg, but my line to him was, Charlie, look, you're probably a better professor than you are a husband. Are you sure you're making the right choice? And he said, yeah. Now, he ended up staying married to Margaret um, for 23 years. So he was, he made a big, he made a better pick than I. And that's when I started sort of teaching. And then Greenwald, so that's nine, fall of 92. The Murray lectures are that spring. I don't know anything about Murray. I don't know anything about value investing. I'm a growth guy. I'm a spring Oh, whoa, guy. whoa, Paul, you have to add the part <laughs> about, because there was one semester where you couldn't teach and you looped someone else in. And who did I loop in? Oh, Mobison, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I recruit Michael Mobison, who then goes on to a very successful career at this whole thing. So there is this gap, but there are things well, going we're on. We're not sure that there's really a gap, but the but folklore is the, there. The clean, yeah, the, the fun, clean story is Murray, it dies in 77. Greenwald comes to the rescue in 83. Now in, in 93, in fairness, Right. Murray taught for a long time. Greenwald taught for a long time. Graham taught for it. So in that sense, they had a bigger impact because of the duration. But from 77 to 93, there's a lot going on. Then as Paul referenced, there are a lot of the alumni um, who are a little bit upset. Mario, um, uh, Chuck Royce, that the course is not really being taught in the way they think it should be taught. I think Mayor, Dean of the Business School, realized that they had to revive the class in some form. They'd had these adjuncts kind of come and go, not, you know, not without success. I don't want to take anything away from them, but I think Mayor felt they had to bring this back into the full-time program. And I think given Bruce's background, I suspect, and there was growing pressure from Mario, growing pressure from the alumni. Some people had made some donations. And I think it was kind of tacit agreement that Bruce would relaunch the class. And I think what Bruce recognized is that to help him relaunch it, I should get Murray back in the classroom and see how he did it and then launch. So in the fall of 93, they co-taught 
And that was the last time Murray was in the okay. classroom. A, a few other pieces, like surprise, surprise, a big part of a dean of a business school is fundraising. Like I'm, I'm sure that that comes as a surprise to everyone. You know, Mayor, like, like I went to business school when Mayor was there and he was phenomenal. He's like a really dynamic guy, has this incredible South African accent, incredibly articulate. Um, but like at the end of the day, they need to raise money. Like the building was like falling apart. Students were complaining about the conditions and they needed to do capital raising. And it's, as Paul said, there was a lot of pressure from alumni to reinvigorate the value investing program there. And like, you know, Bruce, they may say that like, you know, he needed Roger to help him, but like, I don't know that Bruce, we, we could ask him at some point. I'm not sure he wanted to teach the class. I so, don't think he wanted to teach the class. I don't think he had a choice. So it was like, he kind of brought in Roger to really help him. The second year the class was when I was there, um, Pat Duff was co-teaching the class with Bruce. And they would bring in, uh, you know, they brought in Tom Ebright from Royce. So, and, and he and the, and the design of the course is, is really what every professor wants. And that, 12 lectures. We're going to lecture the first five, and then we're going to have seven guest speakers. And that became the architecture. Well, teaching five lectures is fairly easy for a professor. And then you have these guest speakers. And the guest speaker list at the beginning and even today is fantastic. Um, and that launched, and they now call it the Legends class because you interview these great legends. And Buffett came every year for a while and then started coming every other year and then stopped. He said, we'll only entertain students in Omaha. But now I want to give a nod to Bruce because Bruce is a microeconomist. And the one thing he brought to, we'll call it value investing, that is really important to recognize is competitive advantage. So if you think of earnings power value being based on some cash flow, the way Paul and I have defined, we redefine earnings power value and pitch the perfect. And we, we think that's the right way to think about it is this idea of a no growth perpetuity cash flow. What Bruce really identified is if some of that cash flow is from your competitive advantage, some of that cash flow is from your excess returns, you really have to think about the sustainability of that competitive advantage, because otherwise you really can't count on that perpetuity. Now, I think Bruce is brilliant. And this is what comes out in the in the 01 book with Paul Sonkin. I think that was Bruce's big contribution to it is connecting. My no, no, no. Bruce's Bruce's contribution is Bruce was Bruce. Yeah, like, Bruce is, Bruce he is. is like larger than life, unbelievably dynamic in the classroom. Like, so, so I took his class in 94 and then I kind of TA'd for him and graded papers for six years and I would go to the lecture. So I heard him lecture a lot and he is just an unbelievable lecturer. The command that he would have over the classroom, uh, like, I've I've seen few teachers with, you know, that kind of command. And what Bruce taught was his his value investing was the most visible, but his most famous course is something called ESB, the Economics of Strategic Behavior. And in that class, he'd have 200 students. And as Paul said, great command of the classroom. I sat through that course twice the entire semester, uh, both times, and really 
he was a, a very important mentor to me as an investor, very important mentor to me as a professor. And me as well. Now I'm, I'm, uh, I want to ask the question, what, what makes uh, Bruce Greenwald such a good teacher? But actually, I mean, this is a podcast about Roger Murray. And uh, actually, Greenwald referred to Murray as an outstanding academic and a great lecturer. Uh, so maybe we could start there. What, what made Murray such a good uh, teacher? Well, it's an interesting question, because if you listen to the 93 lectures, which I spent a lot of time listening because we want to make sure we there was a transcription, but. I'm sure in the podcast business, you go back and you look at the transcript and you're like, wow, this is more of a mess than we thought. Um, the lectures were a bit of a mess. Paul, one of Paul's favorite phrases I like, it was a bit of a hot mess. And so I had to listen to him again and again, very carefully and make sure we captured the words correctly and all that. And that took a long time. I thought that would be the easy part of the book that ended up being the hard part of the book. And you listen to Roger and at no point are you blown away. At no point you're like, oh, my God, mesmerize. I want to keep listening. Tell more, tell more. So now he's 90. This is in 93. He's 88 years old, um, 82 years old, whatever it is. So maybe he's lost something. But it's hard for me. She was pretty spry. Yeah, but it was hard for me to think that you had this dynamic professor that you just couldn't wait, hanging on every word. Um, entertaining, wonderful stories. And yet when you talk to Mario and Leon, they talk about this fantastic experience. You know, so Bruce Bruce was never really in the class, sort of in the classroom with Murray. So I'm not sure Bruce had enough firsthand experience to say that. I think that's a, a deferential comment. Um, Roger was clearly a, a bit of an academic. He was more of an economist than he was an academic. He didn't write academic papers, but he wrote a fair amount of economic commentary and a little bit of economic research. Um, so in that sense, I think you could say that he had leanings toward academia. I don't think he was. Paul, any- you said something interesting. You said that Mario and Lee said that it was uh, an incredible experience. And I think that what Roger did, because, you know, again, he was a gentleman. He was meticulous, like uh, uh Lee told a story like like so part of the analysis is that uh, Roger, he was incredibly disciplined and had the students do these uh, all of these ratios and 20 ratios per company. And there 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 were these huge spreadsheets, uh, but but they were on paper on like that green accounting paper. And like Roger and there were probably like a thousand cells on this accounting paper. And Roger found on Lee's one number that was like it, it was transposed or it, 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 it was incorrect. And Lee was just amazed that he could pull that out. So I think that there was there. Roger was a tough grader and really expected a lot from his students and was meticulous. And I think that the impact that that had on them was it, it I think that that experience was more impactful than the actual lectures or you know kind of the academics that he did. And Paul, you, would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think it's great. And when you meet both Lee and Mario, and I think a bit more Mario than Lee, they are full of personalities. They are Mario's a natural sales guy. Uh, I think he probably has a a photographic memory um, and just remembers the weirdest fact. Um, and I think that discipline 
combined with Mario's natural creativity, natural assertiveness, natural salesman, I think that discipline did have a big impact on it. I think going through a rigorous class that says you cannot just you know pull this out of your fanny. I think for somebody like Mario, who probably could get away with just charm and his and his intelligence and his memory, I think that experience of being disciplined probably is cannot be understated in Mario's case. And I think to some degree, Lee, Lee was hard work. Lee was one of the hardest working guys on Wall Street. It was a machine. And I suspect that also that focus that, hey, perfect is don't transpose the two numbers in the fifth year on the seventh company. That, Paul and I, as we spent more and more time with Murray, more and more, and more time, it really, what I think Roger brought is discipline. Now, keep in mind, you start teaching at 56, from 56 to 77, two phenomenons are going on on Wall Street. One is the market's getting more efficient. And why is it getting more efficient? Investors are getting more sophisticated. So the things that Graham saw, you would never see, these net nets and these arbitrages and things like that, those were starting to get arbitraged away because the market's getting more efficient. So that's really important. So being disciplined is critical. The second thing that's going on is an earnings quality issue. And it yeah, really bubbles up. a lot of up. accounting issues during the late 50s and also And it really 60s. bubbles up in the 70s and becomes you know, front line. But I think Roger saw that early on. And so he taught you this rigor of second guessing the numbers. And you do this through ratio analysis over time and comparison with companies. And then when you start to see the anomalies, you either have found a potential value investment or you found something that you should be careful of. And I think those two things are going on in the in the Melu that uh, Paul teaches me this, the zeitgeist that's going on. And Roger's natural discipline brings that to the classroom. And I think that is, if there's a contribution from Roger academically, it's this idea we go from back of an envelope, uh, the famous phrase that Graham says, you know, you, I don't always know what uh, 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 intrinsic value, but the extremes are obvious. And I think the extremes start to disappear. And what Roger says is to find those opportunities, you've got to be incredibly disciplined. I think that's I, the other thing that people don't fully appreciate is that and, and it's difficult. But again, during the 50s and the 60s, there were a lot of accounting issues. Like it's not like we have today with Sarbanes-Oxley and 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 stuff like that. Um, like like Abe Brilloff at, at Baruch came out with like a, a, you know more debits than credits and unaccountable accounting. Yeah, but that's the really at the end. I mean, that's when it's becoming obvious because he starts publishing '68 and early '70s. Really? Yeah. So so that's the thing is that this was really a major issue, probably from like '62 to '70. And, uh, and, and, and Roger having this incredible discipline for these ratios, it, it, it kind of puts it into context because like you go back and look at it and say, well, you know, why was he so focused on ratios when you understand kind of what was going on with the accounting, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot more sense. And what would you say are the big differences if you would take the, this class today compared to when, when he was teaching it? Well, I think that's the interesting question. So if Roger were teaching today, what would he teach? Um, well, I, <laughs> I've gone on. So I started teaching in fall of 92, and I've taught basically every year since. I've taught 55 semester-long courses at Columbia Business School. And um, 
you know, I think about Graham. What would Graham teach? I think about Murray. What would uh, Greenwald? I actually, Paul and I both taught the Legends course or the, the Value Investing course when Bruce was on sabbatical in '97 and then '04, um, and I've been in that environment for 30 plus years. So I think about this question: What would Murray teach today? Because it, it, Newton's great phrase, you know, we've been able to look a li little bit farther, but standing on the shoulders of giants. And, and you know, I, I've studied Bruce extensively. I studied Murray now extensively. We all studied Graham extensively, studied Buffett extensively. And, and the problem, I think, for all of those individuals is we've, we've just the discipline has come so far that if Roger were to teach the same lectures today, and in fact, I've had several people say that they both watched the lectures and read the book and said, there's not much there. And the answer is because you already know it. But when Roger's doing this from 56 to 77, that's brand new material. So now back to your question, if Roger were to teach today, he, you know, what, what are we struggling with today? Growth. Growth is the, this is what Paul and I spent an enormous amount of time on it. The issue is we know how to, we know how to value everything except growth. Growth is the, the final frontier. And value investors, when I say this, they say, well, I don't worry about growth, which is nonsense. You, you, by definition, if you worry about tomorrow, you have to worry about growth. And oh, by the way, growth can be small or big, and it can be positive or negative. We tend to think of growth as big and positive. But no, anytime you're trying to forecast cash flows and using any valuation method, by definition, you have to think about full, forward cash flows. You have to think about growth. Now, the growth may be small. It's big growth that we don't know how to value very well. And so if Roger or Graham, now Graham was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I think that Graham would embrace this and have contributions now. Roger, it's an interesting question. I, I, don't, I just, he's smart, coolly passionate. I don't know what he'd be teaching today. It would be different, have to be different. I don't know, Paul, what's your take? I mean, I think that if, if you kind of take like, like, like his raw intellect and his attention to detail, like I, I think exactly what you're saying, like he would, he he would try and engage with difficult issues and kind of push things forward. So yeah, I I, I think yeah, but Paul he could spending teach, time. I think Murray today could teach an earnings quality class as well as anybody. Oh yeah, um, so you know, maybe it would be an earnings quality class wrapped around a value investing title. You know, he probably would have been. He probably would have folded more behavioral finance in more market time, efficiency, yeah. um, because like market efficiency, when he was teaching, was really in its infancy. Like uh, uh, you know, Gene Fama in '66 was a pup. Um, so it, it really it's funny because Markowitz publishes in I think it's '68. So. And if we talk about uh, Murray without the academic hat on, how was he as an investor? No one knows. His, at Bankers Trust, he helped run trusts, and there's no track record. At CREF, he was really there to help them develop their equity strategy. He gets there, they have $50 million under management. He leaves six years later, they have $950 million under management. Too short of a time to track record, but his real if you will, contribution is, is how do you manage those inflows? Because you're going from 50 million to 950 million over time, you have to invest incrementally. No track record's ever been published of his performance. Uh, I think and you, he was also pounding the table on equities 
and like Cref invested a lot in bonds. So I think that that it, it, it was probably the mix shift. Um, yeah, but it's not like, you know, with Graham, you're Graham Newman and there's a track record with Murray. He didn't run a fund. And nothing we did. The, the two things that were, I don't know, disappointing were we couldn't find any performance record. And two, we couldn't find anybody that easily or anybody that worked with him because he was more, a bit more of a manager <coughs> of people, analysts, than he was necessarily a manager of money. And so Paul Sonkin kept asking me, well, where are these people that work for him? They're, some have got to still be alive. Let's go talk to him. What was he like as a manager? What was he like as an investor? And uh, I, I never could find anybody. We tried to reach out, but we never did. And I think like as a, as a, you know, as, as a gentleman and given his upbringing, like I, I, I think that he was probably, uh, you know, pretty closed. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think that he really disclosed a lot about himself to other people. One of the great stories we had is we reached out to his son and, interview him and talk to him a lot. And uh, the great <laughs> discovery was that number one, Roger was a pack rat and kept every piece of paper he had ever received, uh, written everything. And it was in boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes. Um, and his son had decided, I guess, two years or three years before we started the project to throw them all away. So on the one hand, it would have been interesting to go through them. It would have been a lifetime to go through. <laughs> so, so Paul and I were joking. We probably missed a bullet. I, yeah, I think having some of those would have been kind of interesting. Um, but they, you know, they no longer exist. Best we can tell, they no longer exist. You mentioned in the book that uh, Murray incorporated an economic outlook before making investment decisions. Uh, can you maybe tell us some more about how did he actually do that, and and what do you think about his strategy doing that? The back, backdrop is, is he um, at Bankers Trust fairly he early He was the chief career. economist. Wasn't yeah, he? he became the economist and over time the chief economist. Um, and I think, I don't want to take anything away from economics, but I think forecasting the economy and the depression aside, kind of from the early 40s to late 60s was fairly straightforward. Um, a lot of economic models got produced. That was the golden era of econometric. Um, and I think he kind of did that. I think after 79, the world got infinitely more complicated, anticipating the second part of your question. I, I suspect that it was, he claimed that he had a weekly meeting with all of us analysts and they would talk about the economy and do a top down and a bottoms up and match everything up. I'd love to fly back in time and listen to those conversations because from the current perspective, looking backwards, I think it's borderline a waste of time. Um, but at that time, maybe there was some value add. Things were more predictable, easier to understand. Uh, and the market was less efficient. So you might have been some value add there. I don't know. Paul, what do you think today, starting top down, figuring out where interest rates are going? Well, I mean, I think the, the thing is, is like, again, if you're the chief economist at Bankers Trust, and the Bankers Trust was a lot smaller back then than it was like before it got taken over by Deutsche Bank. Um, but like... You know, that was what he did. And then if you're uh, running money at Kraft, 
you know, you kind of have to have a top-down view because a lot of it is all allocation, how much to bonds, how much to stocks. So it's just kind of, I guess I've seen with investing that like one, once assets get to a certain level, you have to have a view about the economy. Even if like the track record of economists is it's not all that good. Just Although wisdom of the crowd, the, the track record of wisdom of the crowd for economists is actually quite good. Individual economists, not great, but the crowd, not bad. One thing that we touched on, I just want to bring back to the story is that Roger was bullish on equities, his entire U.S. equities, his entire life. And he was right. Fundamentally, he was right. Um, and it, he claims at times he was a bit more cautious, but in general, very bullish all the time. And he was right. Uh, he recognized that over time, diversified portfolio will will deliver better returns than any other asset class. And he was consistent. So it wasn't like he did. And he talked about it regularly. So it wasn't he's just taking credit from one claim from 30, 50 years ago. No, he talked about it regularly and always led with that. And he was right. He was right. There was one point that he, when he was very, very bullish. That was in 1974. Right. Yeah, so 74, everybody, the world has gone dark. And uh, Roger steps up and makes a very famous proclamation that it's not dissimilar. We've heard Buffett made the same comment that he just and they didn't have a relationship, by the way. Um, they didn't really know each other at all. Uh, makes a claim that, you know, that, that you, this is the time to be wildly bullish. While he said the returns on equities are going to surprise people. And he nailed it. He absolutely now. He was bullish going into 74, but at 74, he stepped up at a time where that was controversial. And some people cautioned him and said, are you sure you want to make this claim? And he made the claim and was right. The opportunity of a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something we all grapple with as investors is, uh, is the problem when we see a, a change in business, uh, in a business, uh, a negative change. And we have to, to understand if it's, or try to, to understand if it's cyclical or structural. And he didn't really answer the question, in, uh, at least from, from what I read. But so I, I asked the, this tough question to you instead. I mean, do you have any tools or, or so to, to figure this out? Well, we have tools that we certainly teach and employ. Um, I think the question that's most important in my mind, it's a structural, is there a structural change? And the two biggest drivers of structural change are changes in competitive balance and innovation disruption. Um, so yeah, if you, if you can go through a checklist and it doesn't have to be that long and you say, look, the competitive balance really hasn't changed much or enough to change the economic. And by the way, the it's not being driven by a disruption. I think that starts to build confidence that this is potentially temporary. If in fact you go through a checklist and you see that the competitive environment's changing in some way, whether you can articulate why, but you identify it's changing and or there are some disruptions at the edge that are starting to change that, then I think you, you, you stop and you say, wait a minute, this may be more permanent. But those are tools we've developed kind of since Roger was teaching that. Um, and I, I think that's kind of an important way to think about it. And that to some degree comes out of the work that's been done on competitive advantage um, and innovation. And Buffett's points on point on this is uh, is mostly to avoid uh, I mean b those businesses that are 
I mean, uh, ex- more exposed to these uh, competitive dynamics and so on. And is that the same with Murray, or did he? Did he? Um, I mean, what type of business did he advocate for? Well, you know, sort of riff on both of those. Number one is Murray was lived through a time where disruptions were actually fairly rare. Um, the economic upheaval, as we know, it starts in '79. The world radically changes in 1980. Um, prior to that, it's. There are very few disruptions. If more than anything, I think what Murray would say is watch out for bad management because that Greenwald's great line is there's no value traps. There's just management traps. And I think Murray would have been very sensitive to that. I think the Green, the Buffett comment of avoid those businesses, um, you know, good luck with that. Uh, that used to be an option. Um, I don't think it, you know, there's disruptions everywhere. We see this acceleration and disruption. So, uh, Buffett's at near the end of his career. It's easy for him to say avoid those, and yet I think his largest position, or certainly largest incremental position, is a company called Apple. Um, and I suspect that there are some serious, longer-term disruptive issues that you have to grapple with if you're going to own a lot of Apple. Uh, so I think some of those are backward-looking comments. But Roger lived in a time where there's very little disruption, and I it was. No, I don't know about that because, like, again, he lived through the, the Great Depression. Then you had this huge upheaval during World War II. Then the bus. But generally, but, but from 46 to 77, you've got a straight shock. Mm, no, I mean, you had a pretty serious bear market in the early 60s, another one in the late 60s. Yeah, but and, wait, 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 wait. We're not a lot talking. Of changes. You know, yeah. Air yeah. travel, containerized shipping. Right, but those aren't disruptions in the same way we think about them today. Um, I, I think the economy was, you know, you had a lot of boom and bust because people, uh, you know, you would have too much inventory and then too little because you didn't have the computerization. So, like, I, I, I mean, look, you definitely had a really good economic run in the 50s. Um, but I think there's always been a lot of upheaval. There's always been a lot of disruption. And on a related note to disruption and its risk, I think, and in the first of his four lectures there in 1993, Murray describes the difference between risk and volatility, where he argues that risk is buying a company that fails. And when we speak here today, many people out there are still, they equal risk and volatility. So we have no better people to ask probably than, than two distinguished professors. Why isn't this uh, debate settled by now? Oh, Paul, this is, this is all you. This is something that near and dear my heart and then in which the perfect, we have a chapter on it. We try to explain and we give a very simple example of a lottery ticket. I'm still, and I give that same lecture in my class every year. Um, and I'm still somewhat amazed. I was on a, panel before the COVID with a uh, woman from Goldman Sachs who was in the risk management group. And I said, what in the world is that? And it's volatility management. And we're on this panel and every time she said risk, I would say volatility. And and she would get very frustrated with me. Um, And finally, at the end, she conceded that it was vol vol management. I think it partially comes out of academic finance and this idea of of, of short-term vol um, if the market's perfectly efficient, vol and 
risk are the same thing because if it's efficiently priced today and efficiently priced tomorrow, the change is, guess what? Only information driven. Um, so at the extreme risk of all the same thing, VAR, this idea, not value-added research, but the, the idea of um, uh, a risk measure is all based on VAR. So there's these institutional pressures to focus on VAR as some sort of measure of risk. And on a short-term basis, VAR is a type of risk if you are structurally, right? If I have leverage, vol can turn into risk pretty quickly. If I've got a managed account and other people can decide my allocation, vol can turn into risk. So vol is risk at the limit. Vol is, can be risk if I structurally can't deal with it. So in that sense, I understand it. So it's certainly what Buffett has done is structurally set him up so he can deal with volatility. Uh, the other one, Howard Marks talks a lot, the difference. They structurally set himself up so he can deal with volatility. If you can deal with volatility, it is not risk. If you cannot deal with volatility, volatility turns into risk. And I think it's those sort of institutional pressures, uh, structural challenges that make vol risk, but it is not risk. At least if you can be patient, it's not risk. I, I think the real issue is that people are imprecise with their language. And it's, it's, you know, Paul, like your example, like this, this woman on the Goldman, uh, on, on the panel was calling it risk. But when you kind of push back a little and you defined it, she was really talking about volatility. So I think a lot of the problem just comes from people being imprecise with the language that they're using. But communication is difficult, really hard. And I think if you say, um, uh, I'm in the risk management group, that sounds very impressive. If you say, we're in the volatility management business, people are like, oh, that sounds sort of trivial. So I, I think Paul's right. Um, we're, I'm a stickler on this time. <laughs> right? And the other one is risk and uncertainty, which I think is the other, the twin problem, which people will say, oh, it seems too risky to me. And I say, no, I think it's too uncertain. And we humans, you know, we... We generally don't like uncertainty, except, by the way, we love uncertainty when it comes to game shows and mystery novels and and uh, movies. We love uncertainty. Um, we hate uncertainty in our lives. We hate uncertainty around financial things. But if it's just uncertainty and not risk, then you have to learn to live with it. But we've humans have conflated uncertainty and risk generally. You know, Cayman and Diversity teach us that downside vol is, is two times as painful as upside vol. Um, and so that's a factor. So people are very sensitive to anything that could be downtime volatility. So I think there's lots of things that go on in this. What Murray it's really, really Im said. Im imprecise language. And imprecise language. And I think what Murray was really saying was just that. Don't let, if you're right on your estimate of intrinsic value, ignore the volatility if you can, and you'll be just fine. And Murray also discusses the importance of understanding the expectations that go into, into a price, where you add that you think this is the toughest part of active management. Why is that? Well, you've, you've asked two questions. Why do right? I, I, I was impressed by that, that you don't see it in his earlier work, but in the 93 lectures, he really embraces this idea that price is a set of investor expectations, which, as far as I'm concerned, was the, the big breakthrough in investing over the last 25 years is that acceptance that in the, every price, there is a set of investor expectations. Stock prices go up when those expectations are beat. Stock prices go down when those expectations are missed. Um, now, teasing out what expectations are is, I think, the art part of the business. What Paul and I have been working on over the last couple of years post 
uh, Pitch the Perfect is, can we do a better job of teasing out what those expectations are? And we've made a lot of progress in the last year, some stuff that really allows um, us to quantify what expectations are. Um, uh, Michael Mobison and I wrote a paper together um, in 97 where we started this process of what can we tease out um, uh, this idea of expectations investing. The challenge, of course, is there are three unknowns that you're trying to predict, the, the level of profitability, the duration of that profitability, and then growth. And we only have one equation of DCF. So you have one equation, three unknowns. Um, what Paul and I have done is figured out a way that you can hack into a DCF and tease out some of those expectations. So um, it has certainly been art. We've been pushing to see if we can get a little bit more discipline around that. We think we made some progress. Now, my absolute favorite part of the Murray lectures, which we put in the book, was he used this incredible analogy talking about intrinsic value. And he said that intrinsic value is like a magnet. And wherever expectations go, the intrinsic value, it, it, it eventually bring, uh, uh, it brings expectations back to the intrinsic value. And we, we put that in the book because we thought it was such an impactful analogy. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's clearly my favorite part of his lectures. And what Murray really believed, I'm not sure you can argue it as, as strongly today, is that that price moved around a lot more than intrinsic value. And it was that volatility away from intrinsic value that created your opportunity as an investor. Well, market efficiency would say, using Paul's story, is that that magnet's gotten stronger over time, and therefore the deviations away from from intrinsic value are harder to argue. And then Dick Thaler came out with this idea of no free lunch, which is that even if price is deviating from that intrinsic value, that magnet you have to be able to exploit it. So A, you can argue that price and value move, price is way more volatile than, than intrinsic value. But Dick Thaler says, all right, fine. Good luck is knowing when to buy that security. That art piece is really the hard part. Um, so, and I, I love that Paul brought that up. I think Murray got that. Certainly by the end of his career, he got all of that. Yeah, Paul, it took me a while to get that. Like you kept saying, you know, the price is right, no free lunch. And like you kept pounding me away and it took me a while, but I finally got it. I also liked what Murray said in one of the lectures in 93, that the greatest deficiency in the market's pricing of corporate America is its lack of patience. What are your thoughts on that? I've, ne I've never been a big believer that Wall Street's that Wall Street's impatience leads to a fundamental mispricing of American security. I, I just don't buy the argument. Um, I do think people are impatient. There's this idea of time arbitrage, which Paul and I differ. We, we're, we become incredibly good friends and we're incredibly important sparring partners for each other. But we do disagree on some things because we're still trying to work it out. And I think Paul will give a bit more of a nod to time arbitrage. I'll let him talk. But I think this idea of impatience, which would lead to time arbitrage, I think at the end of the day, it's nonsense. But 
Paul, you? Well, Paul, I guess, so So one thing that you said during one of your lectures when I was TAing for you, or maybe it was, I, I think I might have brought you into guest lecture in my class that always kind of stuck with me, is that you spoke about short-termism. And it was like, I remember Ascend, uh, which was like a networking stock. It missed by like a penny and the stock fell like 30%. And it, it, it was like, okay, they missed the quarter so that, and it fell 30%. So that looks like short-termism. But Paul, what you said is that actually there's a fundamental change in their business. And if you look at the growth rates and these cash flows that go very far out in the future, those are collapsing. So it's, 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 it's really the reason why there's such a big change in the stock price isn't because the market is short term, but because it's actually looking very long term. Yeah, and I think if it was like, short, if it was short term, it would be a short term move, be down and then back up. The fact that it goes down thirty and then down another five percent, ten percent, stays there for a while, in my mind, is an argument that it's actually long term oriented, not short term oriented. And some of the the this new book that we're working on about growth that Paul is. You know, just coming up with some unbelievable stuff kind of, you know, uh, really gets to the heart of those issues. And related to this is something that uh, Murray speaks about. He, he urges investors not to count the same trick twice uh, when they value companies. Maybe you can explain a bit about this. I think that that I give a nod to Murray. I think this is a really important insight that things change. And be careful. So now the opposite side of what we talked about a few minutes ago about whether or not the disruption, he says, by the way, you've got to ask yourself, fundamentally, is there a change in accounting, change in tax, change in leadership, change in structure of the business? So don't just assume your calculation of intrinsic value or your methodology of calculating intrinsic value five years before is the right way to approach it now. And in that sense, I give him a lot of credit. I think he's exactly right. So now we want to go in a bit more to into your day jobs. Um, so Paul Johnson, you run Nikusa Investment Advisors, and uh, in your role as an adv- as an advisor to CEOs and boards regarding strategy, capital allocation, shareholder value creation, and corporate governance, where do you think most companies lack competence? Is it equal in all these areas, or? Yeah, yeah. I just a very quick brief. I stopped managing money in 2012, well, 11 years ago, um, for lots of reasons. One, uh, I was sub scale um, at the time when the regulations were going up. Second is, I think, frankly, my area of the market had gotten more efficient. It was harder to outperform. Um, and what dawned on me is I had this experience and skill of being an investor, but what if we took that and we flipped it on its head and we went to Mr. CEO or Mrs. CEO um, or any of the C-suite or the board of directors and said, boy, we've learned a lot about investing, how we look inside. What if we took those same lessons and you use those to drive strategy and governance and communication? Um, And I found that to be a really frankly, a more receptive market these days because there's so little training. So now that's kind of the backdrop. What is, without a question, without a question in my mind, it's governance. Corporate governance in the U.S. is a disaster. Um, boards are there. And, and if you go look at Delaware law and you look at the 
legal history, boards are there to act as fiduciaries for shareholders. And they gave up that role a long time ago. Um, I don't have a problem with compensation. I don't have a problem with lots of this. I do have a significant problem with governance. And the board, if they would take on the fiduciary responsibility of managing the organization for the long-term shareholder, then things like uh, uh, stakeholder capitalism fits perfectly. ESG, whatever that really is, fits perfectly. Um, compensation would then be reined in. I mean, Murray would be shocked at the compensation today. He was troubled with it in the 70s. You know, now he'd have the apoplectic. He just, he thought it was out of control then. He'd think, he'd think it's just a disaster now. So governance for sure. Boards have advocated their responsibility, which means we end up with CEOs that are too powerful. Um, compensation's out of control, but that's the board's problem. So I think governance without a question is the case. I think the second issue, which I'm spending a lot of time um, on as well as this idea of execution, translating strategy into actual execution. Uh, we have this new workforce, sometimes referred to as millennials, and they're viewed as snowflakes and empowered and blah, blah, blah. And when you go interview them and talk to them, which I've done a fair amount of actually, they're, they're as ambitious as we were when we were, you guys are young guys, but Paul and I, they're as ambitious and as serious, but they're, they lack, in a sense, this deference to the organization, and they lack this weird sense of loyalty. Certainly when I was early in my career, if you quit a job within a year, that was going to bother you your entire career. You know, now they, they might quit a job after three months and not care about it. Um, so the changing workforce, the changing competitive pressures, I think being able to translate strategy into execution with this new workforce is the new challenge particularly for old guys like me that, that learned in a different set of rules. So th those are the two things. Now, as an investor, I think both those things apply a lot, a lot. And the fact you don't have governance really affects long-term value. And the fact that you really this, this gap between strategy and execution is going to affect companies' ability to hit numbers, frankly, over time. And, and do you have any examples in, in those areas where investors can can I mean get a get a get a better grasp on if, if this company is doing well or poor? Yeah, great follow-on question. I would say number one is you really have to the hard part of the job, one of the hard parts is you really do have to evaluate the board and the governance. Um, certainly when I was a younger analyst investor, we we tended to just live with whatever we had. Activism exists because of that. Uh, poor governance. By the way, private equity, there are more private equity owned companies in the US than there are public companies by a ratio of about two to one. Private equity exists because of the governance problem. I would argue that without the governance problem, you wouldn't have private equity. Um, so that's kind of how the world has done that. The rest of investors, you've got to take the governance issue seriously. Now, the execution part is really tricky. We're trying to come up with some measures on way you can kind of metrics you can monitor. That's early work still. And I want to direct a question to Paul Sonkin there. I mean, as an expert in small and micro caps, what's the difference in these areas with large and, and small companies? Oh, in from a governance yeah. point of view, um, I guess it's uh, well. You 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 have certain rules and laws, like uh, you know, you have to have a certain amount of independent directors for the accounting and. Uh, uh, you know, so, uh, but I, I, I guess there is well, a lot of these micro cap companies. I, I, it, it, it just feels as though, well, and with large cap companies is they don't, uh, 
you know, fully appreciate that, uh, you know, that they are there at the, uh, you know, as fiduciaries of the shareholders. And, um, you know, you have certain companies that I've come across over the years that are very shareholder friendly and others where uh, shareholders are a nuisance. Um, so, so, so it's really, it's all over the map. Um, I, I don't know that I would say that there's a big difference. I mean, along the continuum, like there are some micro cap companies that have better corporate governance than large cap companies. Yeah, I think that that to me is really fascinating because in a sense, you would sort of think that the smaller cap would have more of a problem because they're smaller and maybe don't have the resources, maybe not exposed to it. But um, I've actually had the opposite. The, the smaller the company, often you'll have families involved or you have a CEO that's really become quite good at her job and really cares about value creation in a smaller mid cap. And I'm big companies you would think, well, of course they have the resources, they have the pressure. And it's sometimes more of a disaster than some of the small caps. So I think Paul's right. It's across Well, like the there's board. this new book that came out on a summer Redstone and all of the nonsense at Viacom and CVS and National Amusements and all this other stuff. So it's like, you know, and then it, it Meta and some of these other large companies, you have dual class uh, share structures. Um, and then it, some, you know, I remember like, like kind of my exemplar for phenomenal corporate governance uh, was Kimball International. And it, they, they have a new CEO and I don't know what's been going on there, but like when I was at Cabelli, like they were kind of the poster child of like what to do right. Um, they, they were just, I, I found their uh, uh, cor- corporate governance to be exemplar. Um, so it is really, I think, case by case basis. Yeah, yeah. case by case basis. And I mean, we have had many guests uh, to speak about um, capital allocation on the podcast, and and maybe the most famous one was uh, Will Thorndike, and uh, he, of course, depicts some of the smartest capital allocators out there in his book, The Outsiders. Um, what questions do you ask to judge if a manager has strong capital allocation skills? And the question is. Is uh, I mean, usually when speaking about capital allocation, I th- I feel that investors often miss that, uh, at least for small and mid caps, um, the most I mean the the allo- the allocation decision, especially if it's a growing company, is usually I mean number one to to grow the operations, and uh, many many people may may feel that okay, uh, they are not doing buybacks or they are paying a dividend. Why are they doing that? They shouldn't do that. So. Um, I want to I wanna give some, uh, I mean, if you can give some flavor on, on what questions you ask uh, a manager would be, would be really interesting to hear. Well, ideally, you don't have to ask. You just observe. Yeah, I think Paul's right. I think that's the most important input is observe. Yeah, if, if, if you have to ask, like it's almost that there's a problem. Um, I, I, I think that this is the other frontier that needs a lot more work um, uh, not so much on the academic side, but that kind of academic practitioner part, um, the Michael Mobisons and the Aswath Dramadorans and things like that. I think Will's book is really important, but it, the N is, it's eight, eight examples in his book from a while ago. And I joke, this is unfair because Will's an awesome guy and the book is really interesting, but of the eight, three are Buffett. Um, so the N is so small and Singleton is such a, a phenomenal individual that 
that's an N of one out of out of a population of millions. And then, of course, the the great Malone has gone on to be just brilliant at capital allocation, almost to a to a fault. Um, so, I'd like to have a you know, call to Mobison or somebody, somebody write a book about the more mortals that you're going to see a bigger N and the more mortals. Michael's written some stuff I think is important, um, but there's a lot more to be doing. Mean, number one, you, you you should not allocate capital unless the incremental returns higher than the cost of capital. That's fundamental, and yet. There are a lot of people that don't know that. Um, I tend to like CEOs that have learned the hard way and he or she gets to the, the 50 or 60 and they just made so many mistakes along the way. They realize this works, this doesn't. They may not be able to articulate it. Maybe they couldn't write a, a lead a class on capital allocation, but they get it. And those are always my favorite. I mean, that's what you hear typically. I mean, we sometimes interview managers and and I think the best ones, they just say that it's it's not a. I mean, we're we're not looking at the ROI. We are we're just a, we're just. I mean, on the back of a napkin, is this a good decision or not? Yeah. And then and they I proceed. think a lot of times that's all you need. I completely agree. I I, um, I haven't read the Outsiders, but I guess to start out with, it's probably a lot easier to allocate capital if you're in a good business and it's probably really hard if you're in a bad business so it's almost like whatever business you're in kind of dictates if you're going to be a good or a bad capital allocator because if you're in a bad business then it's like uh you know you just milk it and shrink it and return as much as you can to shareholders and, and, and paul people how many managers they, do they that? that yeah nobody they yeah no one's going to do so so it's almost like unfair and then if you're in a good business, which is growing, and you continue to reinvest in it, it it's, it's it's almost like inevitable. So I don't know, like, you know, again, I, I, I don't like to use cliche quotes, but it's like, you know, if you have a good manager in a bad business, who's going to maintain their reputation? It's, you know, it kind of cuts both ways. So I don't know that you could, there, there are some brilliant managers that have kind of had the, uh, uh, you know, the the foresight to go into really good industries and good businesses. Uh, you know, but, I think the example from the outsiders, which I love is Tom Murphy, phenomenal business, right? The cap cities, they had close to a monopoly, certainly an oligopoly in certain mid-sized cities. And he was a great manager. And the combination of being a great manager and a great business, you get Lollapalooza, as Munger would say. Um, the, the unsung heroes are the great managers in the really tough businesses. And the oversung heroes are the okay managers in a great business, as Paul set it up. But I, I just I wish we'd I just wish somebody would write that piece. I think Buffett actually says this that that his manager in the textile operation was as good as, as some of the managers in the better businesses. It's just that I mean the the, uh, the business itself was was not as good. So you couldn't see it in the result. Um, and I mean, one of my favorite investment books is actually Greenwald's Value Investing. And and Paul Sonkin, you're depicted in the last chapter. And uh, I mean, you're you're depicted as a, a value investor focused on small and micro caps as well as arbitrage situations. Can you expand on that a bit? What's your investment style? I basically took um, what I from sitting in the value investing class for so many years listening to Seth Klarman and Michael Price and Andrew Weiss and all these other guys and working for Chuck Royce and working at First Manhattan. 
I kind of uh, took what I thought uh, uh, worked. And that was all these guys, they had a lot of their portfolio in arbitrage and a lot of their portfolio in cheap stocks. And that was, uh, you know, kind of how I uh, uh, developed my investment strategy. And is that the same now or has it evolved over time? Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not as like, like it's not an area of focus for me. Like I'm, I'm, you know, working on this next book and uh, the markets don't make a lot of sense to me now. Um, That's interesting. And um, I, I still want to want to ask the question on um, uh, because that's that's quite a big part of, of that chapter portfolio diversification and and you seem to emphasize that on on various levels and many many investors today i hear as well is that you should focus on your best ideas and you can't have so many ideas so, so i mean you, you need to have a, a portfolio of, of a few names only uh, so what's your thought press process around portfolio diversification well when when i was managing money you know years ago like i i uh uh, I guess people would say like diversification is a, a, you know, a substitute for certainty. And my answer was yes. So I've, I've so like, like uh, uh, when I was working for Gabelli uh, and we would go out and market and I was on the Mighty Mites team, I was a co-portfolio manager there. People would say, oh, it has, you know, 485 names. And they would complain about that. And the marketers were always, you know, giving us grief. Oh, you have to cut down the names. You have to cut down the names. I did an analysis and it turned out that like, you know, 200 of those names were like less than 1% of the portfolio. So they were all like these little stub odd ends at the bottom of the portfolio. And when you actually do uh, an analysis, um, it's, it, it's 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 more diversification than the S and P five hundred, but a lot less diversification than having a portfolio with four hundred and eighty five names would lead you to believe. So, like even people with diversified portfolios, they're you know they it kind of winds up being around what the S and P is. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of business risk in having a concentrated portfolio with 10 names. Uh, because like if one blows up, you have a real problem. Um, so and then I guess a lot of value investing approaches, it, it, it's more of a statistical approach. Uh, when I was running Hummingbird, I used to say like out of every 10 stocks, I have two that'll kind of exceed any expectations I ever had, two that'll go to zero, and the six in the middle will probably do as well or maybe a little better than the market. And you know what I'm going to say next. The problem is, is I couldn't identify which were which beforehand. So, so Paul and I managed money for a similar period of time, overlapped a lot, and I was uh a little bit bigger cap than he was, but I was at the smaller end of the size. And I ran a concentrate portfolio, 10 names, and he ran a portfolio with a lot of names. Um, and so I was talking to him one day and my average position size was 10%. And he would say, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> and I would say to him, what's your average position size? I, said, I don't know, half a percent. 
I said, why get up in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> so are you um, managing any money today? That's directed at you, Paul. Or either? I'm not. No, I'm not. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm not managing uh, funds. But only, like, personally, you are still active active investors or no. entirely passive? No. Yeah, I, I don't I, think you call I, my investment strategy active. It's more passive. No, what I... Buy and hold. I think what if I, you're going to be active, you've got to focus. But is it in funds or is it uh, individual names? For me, funds, but... I mean, kind of my advice that I give people is I say, like, you know, you should have a diversified portfolio of low cost index funds and then just like leave it alone. And, and, and then my comment is, is if you want to be active, find names and just carve them out of that portfolio. So we give exactly the same advice, which is low cost index funds, a bit of a diversification and whatever exposure you're sort of excited by. And then if you find something you really like, just add it to the portfolio, carve out a little bit. And then if, if you do this a lot, you may carve out more over time, but, and then you may scale back, but you start with that. Paul and I give exactly the same advice. Start with that. And if you want to active, carve out some money and be a little bit active. And as this is a book podcast, we like to talk a bit about uh, your reading and, and writing habits. So how much are you, are you reading these days? Oh, I read a tremendous amount. Um, I do too, all the time. You know, on on all different uh, on all different subjects. I I I guess I've been reading. Uh, you know, I've I've been reading. I guess lately, ferment about ling, ling, linguistics, like how people use language. Um, and uh, you know, I did like a sentiment analysis of Berkshire Hathaway annual letters. So I'm like interested in computational linguistics and things along those lines and like paul I, re I read i wish i read more i guess i read 20 25 books a year i wish it was twice that um hard to carve out the time um it's just because of the constraints of paying rent and having a social life and things like that but and i'm all over the place i am all over the place, which is fun because i do think you need i like i like munger and then hagstrom's theory that liberal arts in the sense of you want from lots of different disciplines. So I read, last year I decided I want to understand the history of astronomy. So went back to Copernicus and read forward um, to, new, to Einstein. And this year I'm sort of focused on the history of open source. So I've been reading where Linux came from and things like that. And I think I'm shifting now to some bit more economics, um, kind of the where are, I, I just think, I, I think macroeconomics is, is at a stage similar to where we were with leeches in medicine. Um, you know, you have to rebalance the humors and when you lose, use leeches to drain the blood. I think that's where we are in macroeconomics. So reading a little bit of kind of Keynes forward, where are we? What do we know? It's 80, Keynes wrote 85 years ago, just nothing, nothing. Um, the modern economy could argue China enters the economy in 1980. That's 40 years. So I, I kind of just bounce around. And read as much it's fun it's really fun when we spoke to robert hagstrom he said he reads everything except for romantic novels so yeah i don't read novels because I, i don't read any fiction because i don't know what to do with the information because i read so much nonfiction. i always am kind of compartmentalized i teach a lot so i always could i teach that i don't know my mind's weird that way when i read fiction i just literally don't know what to do with the information my mind just <laughs> flips around 
it's supposed to be entertainment, I guess. Now, I, look, this is a podcast on books. I will just tell you, uh, looking around my office, I have too many books. But for $30, give or take, you can buy 400 hours of work. I don't know, order of magnitude, somebody else. I know of no other value investment that's even close to that, where you pay $30 for 400 hours. Now, I, there's too many books out there. I buy too many books. So you got to be a bit selective in the books you read. But talk about the ultimate value investing. You know, Buffett says the same thing. Other people say the same thing. Munger says the same thing. That to me. So I just, you know, some people don't like reading. I understand. But I just boy, talk about the great gift of Western civilization, books. Here at Investing by the Books podcast, we couldn't agree more. Uh, do you have some uh, some title you want to mention, Paul uh, Sonkin? Oh, I was going to say that, like Paul, like you said that uh, that that you don't uh, that you don't read a lot of fiction. Um, I, I actually I, I read a couple books by uh, uh, W. Somerset Maugham, like uh, the Razor's Edge. Um, and then I want to read. Uh, oh, what 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 is that? Uh, the human. Uh, oh, I forget the name of it. But well, I, I mean, it'd be hard for me not to recommend this book that got published in 2017 by two fairly famous authors called "Pitch the Pitch the Perfect Investment," um, which the title's a little misleading. Uh, I think the way that I like to describe it, Paul came up with this great idea that it's the California closets of investing, California closets concept in the U.S. where you go in your closet and they give you all of the spaces to hang and fold clothing. It's, so it's the structure of your closet. And then you can put in sweaters if you have sweaters and shirts and pants and suits or whatever you have in there. And what we did in Pitch the Perfect is try to do that, create the California closet of investing. So we kind of a summary of valuation and market efficiency and risk versus volatility and uncertainty. And then at the very end, we talk about pitching and bring it all together. So that's a that's a book near and dear my heart. It's a book every every analyst has to read. So I think so. I think we had this. There was an event at Columbia last week, and this young lady came up um, out of the blue. She was in the audience and introduced herself, and she said she wanted to thank me. And I was, you're welcome. What did you think? And she said for the book. And I said, uh, uh, pitch perfect. I said, oh my god. And she said. I read it before business school and it created my structure to understand everything I learned in business school. And I was like, like wow, wow you, uh, that's good. You made my day, maybe even my month. I was like, that's pretty cool. And that's kind of what we wrote it for is for people to just have that structure. And no one chapter is exhaustive by definition. And some people read, oh, they didn't go into an depth here. You know, my favorite criticism we hear is the examples are old. <laughs> yeah, well, the book's been out for five years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, we have another book we're writing that will be out in four years. No, that we're writing called The Value of Growth. And it's not a sequel, but it's a continuation of the dialogue, as I like to say. Looking forward to read that. So, Paul Johnson and Paul D. Sonkin, thank you both for a very interesting conversation about you and your book, The Enduring Value of Roger Murray, which we, of course, recommend everyone to buy and review. Do you have something more you want to add before we finish up here? This was great. Yeah, thank you this for being so such gracious, gracious hosts and the questions great were questions. terrific. So thank you. Thank you so much. And and lastly, where can our audience follow you and your work? I am I'm harder to follow. I, I spend a lot of time teaching, so almost all of my publishing, if you will, is in the classroom. Um, so if you're in New York and you want to come audit my class, that would be 
cool, but I don't really, I publish not enough to have any significance. And then we write books. We will hold you accountable to that, Paul. We will come to Oh, I love it. I love the, the class. I love the <laughs> Are you going out to Omaha? I am not. Paul, are you going? No. It's gotten too crowded. <laughs> like value, look, that look, value investors go where the crowd isn't, right? So to go to a event that has sixty thousand people, it's like how? how what's? The, I know interacting with people is the big value, but other than that, it's like too many people. I want to go the other way. So maybe we'll see you in New York then. That would be great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing. <laughs>